Romans chapter 12, and then Exodus chapter 28. We will not be going through the entire passage in Exodus 28 and 29, but I do want us to consider some factors this morning as we contemplate a consecrated life before the Lord. Father, make your word real to us this morning. We're thankful for the presence of the Holy Spirit as he guides us into all truth. And I ask again, as we have already prayed today and as others have prayed, that you would forgive us of our sins, our iniquities before you. Help us to realize that we are forgiven, that we stand complete in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we are still called to live a consecrated life, a life that is set apart, a life that is holy and acceptable and within the perfect will of God. So I ask that as we ponder your word for the next few moments, in preparation for partaking of the Lord's table, again recognizing that there is no special merit that comes from taking the Lord's table. It is simply because it is a matter of grace. It is a matter of being a vibrant testimony, both to the world outside as well as to brothers and sisters here, that we not only have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, but that we are striving to live a life that is holy. Oh Lord, how often do we fail in that area? And yet your word is clear. We simply come before you. As 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, that you are faithful, that you are just, that you are the one that forgives us of all of our sins, and you are the one that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So may our minds be filled overflowing with the loveliness of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the power and the filling of the Holy Spirit this morning, and to know that we have been meeting in the presence of God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we get to Romans chapter 12, I want to point out a few things as I have stated from Romans chapter or from Exodus chapter 28 and chapter 29. When the children of Israel came out of Egypt, God called them to himself because he wanted a people that were set apart. He wanted people that were different. Brother Al has started a series this morning from the book of Daniel. And one of the things that always amazes me, I know one of the first times that, that Al and I talked, uh, we talked about how foolish the Israelites are, and yet we are so much like them. We fail to remember the mercies of God. We prayed from Psalm 28 this morning that, that we would know and understand the mercies of God. And, and even when praying for those who would seek to do us harm or to do the church of Jesus Christ harm in some way, we are to remember the mercies that God has bestowed upon us just as he can bestow on them, even the persecutors. I mean, we, we had somebody like the Apostle Paul. How easy we forget. This is a man who was going around beating up Christians. This was a man who actually had letters from the religious leaders to go and actually kill the Christians. And yet, on the Damascus Road, Paul is riding down the road on his on his cult and all of a sudden he comes and finds himself in the presence of God and he does the only thing that any person can do when you come in the true presence of God and that is he fell on his face. And as he falls on his face, he knows immediately who it is and he says, who are you, Lord? 
And he says, I am the one you are kicking against the pricks or the the ox pricks, the ones that make the cow go when you were in the field. And he says, why do you keep doing this? Why do you persecute me? Because the real enemy of Paul was not the Jewish Christians or the Gentile Christians. The real enemy of Paul was God. The relationship or the lack of a relationship that we had with him. And he was filled with religious zeal but had no true knowledge of the one true God. There are many people in the world today and they seem to struggle with the same area. They seem to struggle recognizing who God is. You see, we have such a jaded view of God. We have such a a poor understanding of who God is that that people think that they can take God and make him in their own image. The world is full of people like that. Unfortunately, there are a lot of people in churches that are like that. And they think that, that God can be brought down off his throne and we'll shape him and mold him into what we want him to be and then we'll put him back on his throne. But the Bible says that God is sovereign. He is sovereign over all things. And when we find the children of Israel have come out of Egypt, not only do they not only are they a special people, not because of something special, not because they were the largest of all the tribes, not because they were the most important of all the tribes, not because they had all the resources. They didn't even have a land when they came out. It would be some 40 years, a little over 40 years before they even got to go into the land of Israel. We talk, and for those of you, how many of you have ever been out of the country in any form, shape, or another? Wow, that's a pretty good number of people. Now, I just want to make sure we're clear here. We're not talking about Colorado. <laughs> we're actually out of the country. You had to have a passport or something to get out, right? I'm, I'm just kidding this morning. You know, in all of the years that we have traveled, and we have gone out of the country, and we have come back in, It is a special sound to be able to hear welcome home from those who are at the the booth where you show your passport and to be able to hear welcome back. But the children of Israel, Brother Sam, they're not there yet. They don't even know. It's been 430 years since, since any of their descendants have even been in Israel or at the land of, that God has promised to them. And So as they're walking along and as they're going through and God gives them the commands and the law of God in Exodus chapter 20 and now we find ourselves at Exodus 20, chapter 28 and we find that God doesn't leave anything to chance even in their worship. We find here that he sets himself apart, a group of people, the priestly garments. Look at verse 28, or chapter 28, verse 1. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, and of course we know what happened to them. They were burned up by fire for offering the wrong type of sacrifice to God. Eleazar and Ithamar, and you shall make, what does it say there if you're following along? Holy garments. For Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty, you shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of skill that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. There's that word consecration. These are the garments that they shall make. A breastplate, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. 
They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. Now, we already know when we come to the New Testament in 1 Peter chapter 2, and we have taught, we talked about this last week, what does God make us? He makes us a holy priesthood. He has called us to be separate. Now, that doesn't mean that we come and everybody has to wear a tie. Everybody has to wear a suit and coat. That's not what we're talking about here. We are talking about what is inside you, what changes you, what has made you to become and to look more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do you think the priests would have been given something different? Why couldn't they just walk and look like everybody else? Because God wanted the children of Israel to be able to see in everyday worship when they saw a priest, it was to be a reminder that God had something special for them as a nation. And he says, I'm not going to leave it to chance. Not only will you worship me in the manner that, that I want you to worship, but as far as the priests are concerned, they have to wear a special garment so that when they stand before me, they also will be holy, not just on the outside, but it is to be represented, a representative of what's on the inside. That's where Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2 comes in. Let's continue with this passage in chapter 28, though. So we find what he is talking about here, and he talks about every piece, the breastplate, the turban, the sash, all of these things that God has ordained that they are to be able to wear when standing before him. And of course, we know that there is a one set of priestly garments that were even higher than this, and that was given to who? The high priest. The high priest could only wear this garment. He could only go into the Holy of Holies how many times a year? Once. And if he went into the if he went into the Holy of Holies and he was not prepared in his heart, if he was not prepared with the right priestly garments, he couldn't just wear a pair of jeans in. He couldn't wear whatever he wanted. He had to wear what God had ordained for him to wear. Because if he went in and he did not present the blood properly, what happened to the high priest? Dead. Another high priest would have to take his place. And so as we go through this, every single aspect of it, look at, look at verse 39, for example. You shall weave the coat, again, not leaving anything to chance here. God tells Moses, you shall weave the coat in checker work of fine linen. You shall make a turban of fine linen. You shall make a sash embroidered with needlework. God has everything planned. Now, is it because we have to come in a certain way? As far as what we wear. No, we can come, we can wear whatever it is that you're wearing. You can dress up, you can dress down, and you can still worship God. The question is though, if we're coming before God and we are worshiping him, what is it that we are wearing? What is it that you and I are wearing in our hearts? Because this is really what's important. Do we live a consecrated life to the point where God has changed us to become more like the image of his son. And as we are wearing these garments, in other words, when God sees us, does he see the same thing that everybody else around us sees? That's really what the focus is of Romans chapter 12. You see, we can come and we can put on a smile and we can say people can come up and shake our hands and say, hey, how are you doing today? I'm fine. When we're really not fine. We could be struggling with something. It could be emotional, financial, uh, 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 
whatever, financial, physiological, physical, uh, mental issues, whatever it may be that we are dealing with. And yet, if we are coming before God, we better make sure that we are coming rightly. Coming in a way that shows that we are striving to be set apart, not perfect. You know, John Wesley, when he was in, in his ministry, John Wesley believed something a little strange, maybe something that you've never heard before. But John Wesley believed that you could attain sinless perfection. He believed that you could reach a point where you would never sin again. Do you know what his diary was filled with, though? Was the woe and the agony of heart and the depression that he never could reach that level. John Wesley preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Lord used him both here in America as well as over in England. And the problem was that he didn't have the right understanding of who God was and what we call progressive sanctification. It's a process and that process will not end until the day you die and you stand glorified before the Lord Jesus Christ. If we thought that we could live sinlessly perfect down here, what do we do when we, oops, we... All of a sudden we slip, we fall in some particular area. Does that mean now that we've lost our salvation? Do you see the illogical process or the thought process of that? I would not want to believe in a God that, that I could put aside or pick up whenever I want to. It, it's either, it either has to be all of God or, and none of me, or it's whatever parts of God that I want to choose. And we know from Scripture that that is not the case. It's like when Aaron and his four sons are there and they come before God and God says to Moses, I choose them. I'm choosing these men to be able to serve before me. And so, of course, later on when Nadab and Abihu, they offer up strange fire before God, God says, wait a minute, I didn't tell you that that's the way you're to worship me and I'm going to take your life. And it was immediate. Judgment fell. Look at verse or chapter 29. Here we find the consecration of the priests, and it's an entire chapter. Now this is what you shall do, verse 1, to them to consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. Again, there is nothing here that these Aaron and his four sons have come up and say, well, you know, we think that we're somebody. We think we should be priests. No, he doesn't do that. God says, I will choose them. I want them to represent me. I want them to come before the children of Israel to be able to offer up the sacrifices. Take one bull of a herd and two rams without blemish and unleavened bread and unleavened cakes mixed with oil and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. Think back with me before maybe you either came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ or maybe the first time that you actually read and maybe you never actually even read chapter 28 and 29. But reading down through this, if this is the first time you have ever heard this passage, think about how strange this must sound to somebody who's not actually been involved with this. Think about what it must be like to, why would you want a wafer? Why would you want unleavened bread? What difference does it make? Well, we know throughout scripture that leaven actually represents what in the Bible? Sin. So when we come and we actually partake of the Lord's table, I believe personally, it's a conviction of mine, that we actually should partake of unleavened bread. Bread that does not have any representation of sin because not only did the Lord Jesus Christ not sin, it was impossible for him to have sinned. 
So as Aaron and his four sons are standing there and they're hearing these instructions from God and and all of the strange things that were to take place, what we have to do in our life in order to be able to, just to be able to go in and offer an offering. Now let's go to Romans chapter 12. God has not changed his understanding of worship. God still wants to be worshipped just as he demanded from Adam and Eve in the garden. Just as he has demanded from every tribe and tongue and people and nation down through history. The reason why the world is in such a mess is not because God has not left a witness. Romans chapter 1 is very clear that God has left a witness for this entire earth so that nobody will be without an, or with an excuse when they stand before God whether it's people in the Philippines or in China or wherever it may be in the the darkest jungles of Africa where we were, they will not have an excuse when they stand before God. And yet how much more so you and I who are here in America who have Bibles galore, we have extra Bibles sitting on our shelves, you can go down to the Goodwill this afternoon and probably pick up a dozen of them for a dollar. We have God's word. We have the ministry of the word. And to whom much is given, much shall be required. But he says, again, let's read these verses in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And I want to make the connection between these two passages that we have read, both in the Old Testament and in the New. I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the what? The mercies of God. To present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your spiritual worship. Some of you may have translation and it says, which is your reasonable service. Is it too much for God to ask that we come before him holy? Is it too much for God to ask that we come to him in a way that is acceptable and pleasing to him, which is a reasonable service? Why would we want to give God our leftovers? We wouldn't. But there are a lot of times in every one of our lives, I've been there, I know. I know what it's like to be able to give God what is left and say, Lord, at the end of the day, whether it's spending time in prayer or spending time reading and and you can get to the end of a week, You know, let me use this as an illustration. How many of you have ever read any kind of material that talks about how long it takes to establish some kind of habit? How long does it take? Roughly. Three weeks, okay? So they say if you do something at the same time, every day for three weeks, you will establish a lifelong habit. Okay? There's a reason why when you go to grade school, I know some of us probably struggle to remember back that far, but there's a reason why you do something called times tables. Some of you are cringing already. <laughs> and you do times tables and you do them over and over and over so that when you get to be an adult, you don't have to pull out your calculator or your phone or whatever to be able to figure out how much change you need to leave at the, on the table when you're paying for your restaurant bill. But you establish a habit and it takes approximately three weeks to be able to do that. You know, you can read your Bible every single day. You can pray every single day for five years in a row and you get up one day and you miss because you haven't spent enough time with God that day and you can go a week, a month, a year, six months and completely forget 
about God. Do you know why? Because it's not something that can be ingrained in your flesh or mine. We have to remember, we have to deliberately establish within our minds, we are going to renew our minds and we are going to work diligently to remember to do the things that we need to do. This is why in this little booklet right here that I have recommended, some of you do not have a copy of it, but in this box right up the front, there is a book there called Praying the Bible. I would highly recommend that. It's not a replacement for the Word of God, but it is a great book to understanding how we can truly pray back to God. But let's go back to Paul's writing here in chapter 12 and look at verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. We are partaking of the Lord's table this morning. The rules really are very simple. This is not for everybody. Everybody is not God's child. Only those who have come by faith to him have placed their faith in Jesus Christ alone, by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, through what the scriptures alone teach. And as we come before God and we remember that it is not by our works, we don't do these things in order to be able to obtain salvation. We do these things because we are saved. We partake of the Lord's table because it's a remembrance of what Jesus Christ has done for us and for all who will come by faith to him. When we partake of the Lord's table, not only is it a reminder to ourselves, but it is a reminder to those around us. So if you're partaking of the Lord's table and you do not know for sure that you are saved, then that really is not a place for you to be able to partake. You shouldn't partake. We don't want you to partake unworthily. 1 Corinthians makes it clear that there were some who even slept. There were some that God had judged in the church in Corinth because they were partaken in an unworthy manner. It's quite possible that there were some who were still living according to the works of the flesh instead of working or living according to the fruit of the Spirit. So when Paul speaks here in this verse, do not be conformed to this world. He is saying when you partake of these things, I want you to put aside the struggles that you have in the world and I want you to focus on Jesus Christ. You see, it's easy to be conformed to the world. The world surrounds us in every single day, whether it's work or school or play or whatever it may be. The world is going to entice you to follow the world. Don't be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed. How? By the renewal of your mind. Listen, if you are depending on your emotions or your feelings as to how you feel about God or his word from one day to the next, you don't understand the scriptures rightly. Because the scriptures have, the, the way that we are to respond to God is not based on whether we're feeling good today, Brother Sam. It doesn't matter what emotions are going on in your mind today. It doesn't matter whether you've had a bad day or you've had a bad week or a bad month or, or you're coming this morning and the whole pile of everything that is going on in the world just seems to be resting on your shoulders this morning. That's not how we come to God. We have to put all of that aside. We have to renew our mind and say, by this you shall know that you have eternal life. And that you are my disciples if you have loved one for another, if you obey my word, if you follow the commands that I have given you. This is how we renew our mind. If I was going to be a Christian just on the days when I felt like a Christian, I would never be a Christian. 
I can't trust that and neither can you because your feelings, my feelings are fickle and they are driven by the circumstances that we have around us. You get up, you go to work, you're on your way to work, you run over a nail, you have a flat tire. How Christian do you feel? Do you feel Christian at that moment? You're going down the road and you're pulling up to the corner of Converse and Del Range. They actually had an article on it in this, this last week's newspaper and they were complaining because you can only get two or three cars if you're following Mark. If you're following somebody else, you might be able to get six or seven cars out through the light. And people were complaining about how bad that intersection is. So you're one of the people and it actually takes three lights to be able to turn from Converse onto Del Range. How Christian do you feel at that moment? Or you're going down the road and you realize that you're driving behind Mark who's driving at 39 to 40 miles an hour down Yellowstone and you're stuck behind me instead of being able to go 50 or 60. How Christian do you feel? Now there are other areas that I struggle with in my life and I recognize that. But if you're going to go based off of your feelings, your feelings are going to let you down. And even if everything seems to be going well when you come before the table of the Lord, I can assure you that there are some of you here this morning, maybe every one of you at some point today as you see this, these elements sitting here in front of you who are probably thinking, I am not worthy. If we were going to go based off of our feelings, none of us are worthy to partake this morning. We simply have to trust that God through his son, Jesus Christ, has made this possible. And when he was sitting there, listen, he sat at the Last Supper with his disciples. One of his disciples, who's been there three and a half years, is on his way to the, to the religious leaders to sell Jesus for the price of a slave. One of his disciples won't even make it all the way through the night, and Peter is going to deny the Lord Jesus Christ three times. He's the spokesperson and yet Jesus still has the Last Supper with his disciples. How do you think Peter must have felt every time he saw the communion being offered on a Sunday when he was worshiping God after, even after the Lord Jesus Christ returned to heaven? How do you think Peter felt? With everything that has gone on in your life this week, I do not know, God knows, but I can tell you this, that we come before him and we come because we know we are forgiven. There are times I don't necessarily feel forgiven, but I know I'm forgiven because I know what God has done for me. Through the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, which is good and acceptable and perfect when we pray, or when you read the model prayer in Matthew chapter 6, for example, and you see, give us this day our daily bread, do we really trust God? When we're praying, Lord, your will be done and not mine on earth as it is in heaven, or are we thinking in our mind, Lord, we want our will to be done, and I simply want you to rubber stamp it in heaven. There are times we do that. But when Paul is writing to these dear, precious Roman believers, he is telling them, you need to discern what God's will is. We're going to be looking at that, Lord willing, this evening in our Bible study as we go through the discipleship class. What does it mean to understand the will of God? 
The will of God is very simple. Number one, that you know Jesus Christ. That you live your life in a way that you are a testimony to the world around you, that you are changing. Those are the things. It's not a long list of rules of do's and don'ts. Where are you at this morning? Would you have been standing on the sideline as one of Aaron's sons, wondering what it means to be consecrated and wondering why do we have to do all of this stuff and maybe I can do it my way instead? To be consecrated is to be in submission to what God wants. You know, I don't understand, Aaron's sons might have said, but we will do it because this is what God commands. Lord, I don't understand the things that you want me to do. I don't understand the things that have gone on in my life, but I will submit to your will because your will is best. Your way is best. And because I can submit to your will and I can submit to your way and I can live a consecrated life through the power of the Holy Spirit, I can know what is the perfect and acceptable and perfect will of God. We sung that hymn though, 275. I surrender all. Are you really surrendering all this morning? Are there parts of whatever's going on in your life that you want to hang on to? You see, it's easy to it's easy to live in a way that we can say, Lord, I like you being Savior, but I don't like you being Lord. God's word is clear. He's Lord whether you want him to be or not. He is King of kings. He is Lord of lords. And when we come before him, we are to come before him with that knowledge, which then allows us to sing with the cherubim and seraphim as we sing in hymn number two. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. We have the privilege. This is a representation, a small representation of the glory that we will see with God. We won't have to worry about this one day. We won't have to worry about the representation of the Lamb. We won't have to worry about the representation of the blood because we'll be with the Savior Himself. We will be with the Lamb. But you know what is wonderful? That the Lord Jesus Christ looking down through time as he's sitting there with his disciples as he is then later hanging on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. When he prays in John chapter 17, and if you've never read John 17, I would encourage you to read that this afternoon. Go home on your way home, put on your Bible app and listen to John chapter 17 and you will see that Jesus prays for you. And despite all of your flaws, despite all of your iniquities, despite all of my flaws, despite all of my iniquities, good Jesus Christ himself is still coming back for us. And one day there's going to be a marriage supper of the Lamb. And Revelation chapter 22 says, Whosoever will may come, drink of the water of life freely. Are you ready for that day? Because this represents that day. Let's pray.